This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 498th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be featuring another one of these millionaires rows. I think every major city in America had one back in the day, especially during the Victorian era. Only a few of them still survive today. And there happen to be a few of these glorious mansions in Memphis that are still around. So this is going to be Memphis's Victorian Village. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Terrence, Sarah with an H, Anna, Christina with no H, she must have given it to Sarah, and Tamala. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining our Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Brianne Sanford. Once upon a time, in a year not so long ago, there was a life-size doll that caught the attention of many, to the extent that a woman wanted to purchase the doll for her granddaughter. The doll was born in Como, Colorado, in 1890. Her name was Lady Blythe Vashti Marvin, and she started performing at the ripe old age of seven. She was discovered by Mary Elitch as Blythe was pretending to be a mechanical doll. Due to her performances, she became known as Lady Blythe, the original mechanical doll. She performed at the 1915 World's Fair in San Francisco, as well as performing as the headliner in the Orpheum Circuit. One of the most commonly shared stories of her career was when she was working in the window of Bullock's department store in Los Angeles. It took place just before Christmas as Lady Blythe played her part of the mechanical doll in the window of the store. Santa would wind her up and then the doll would break down and the performance would repeat, with Santa ultimately picking her up and carrying her away. Lady Blythe noticed an older woman coming to watch her performances for a full week. She became concerned the woman would tell the children who were gathered that she was not an actual doll. Lady Blythe need not be worried because, in fact, the older woman was so taken with the mechanical doll's performances that she wanted to purchase Lady Blythe from the store manager for $1,000. Lady Blythe, the original mechanical doll, performed around the world and had quite a storied career, giving her last performance at the age of 70. But one thing beyond question, a woman making a living by portraying a mechanical doll certainly is odd. Hello, this is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. 
when I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring, it's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. And now, this month in history. In the month of August, on the 4th, in 1912, Raoul Wallenberg was born in Stockholm, Sweden. My dad was also born on August 4th. He was born into two prominent Swedish families, his maternal grandfather being a celebrated neurologist and paternal grandfather an ambassador to the Swedish embassy in Japan. Sadly, Raoul's father, a naval officer, passed away from cancer just three months before his son was born. Wallenberg's paternal grandfather, Gustav, had a great influence on Raoul's life, including his education. This led the young man to study architecture at the University of Michigan. He loved his time in America, and he found it difficult to leave once his college years were completed. Eventually, Wallenberg moved to Palestine, where he worked as an apprentice to a Jewish banker from Holland. This proved to be a turning point of sorts for Raoul, as he met once well-off middle-class Jewish people who were now reduced to ragged-clothed beggars by the Nuremberg laws of the German Reich. After the sudden passing of his grandfather, Gustav, in 1937, Raoul floundered for a few years but never forgot about the Jews suffering in Nazi Germany. In 1944, Wallenberg had made connections with Ivor Olson, a representative of the American Refugee Board. Raoul enthusiastically agreed to go to Hungary to assist the Swedish embassy in Budapest. His progress over the next six months were inventive, valiant, and daring. His admirable goal was to save what was left of the Hungarian Jewish population. Wallenberg created a Swedish passport and stated that it entitled those that held one amnesty from the deportation to the Jewish death camps. He supplied as many as he could without any particular requirements of the receiver. It is estimated that this sole act saved 20,000 Jewish lives. He then went on to create safe houses and was able to home 35,000 people in buildings fabricated for less than 5,000. Wallenberg's humanitarian efforts were relentless and he had an incredible way of encouraging and rallying others to stay positive and vigilant. He continued his valiant efforts until January 1945. Raoul Wallenberg had requested a meeting with the highest Soviet authorities after explaining to Russian soldiers he encountered his goals of rescuing Jews. He was escorted to his home to gather some belongings where he told his friends that he would be back in a week. His friends and family never saw him again. Over the years, there's been varying stories as to the fate of Raoul Wallenberg. The latest sighting noted was in 1987 in a prison camp 150 miles from Moscow. On October 26, 2016, the Swedish government officially declared Raoul Wallenberg deceased with the death date listed as July 31, 1952. Memphis's Adams Avenue is where the rich built their homes during the Victorian era. Today, it is referred to as the Victorian Village, but in its heyday, this was Millionaire's Row. These gorgeous homes not only represent the opulent lifestyle of the rich Victorian times, they hold history and ghosts. Memphis has an amazingly rich history and culture that is both positive and dark. And that is the case with the spirits here, too. Some are benevolent, while others are hostile. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Memphis's Victorian Village. Thank you. 
the city of Memphis has seen some amazing history. I've never been to Memphis. Definitely a place that we need to stop at. I really want to go there. Obviously, I want to see Graceland. Indigenous people, referred to as the Mississippian culture, were the first to settle here, and they were followed eventually by the Chickasaw Indian tribe, who arrived in the 17th century. Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto was the first European to arrive in the area, followed by French explorers led by René Robert Cavalier and Sierre de La Salle. The land was purchased from the Chickasaw Nation in 1818, and Memphis was founded by a group of investors that included James Winchester, John Overton, and Andrew Jackson. There's some names for you, huh? The city was officially incorporated in 1826 and named for the ancient capital of Egypt on the Nile River. The town was initially platted around four town squares, three of which still exist today. Those squares would hold slave auctions as Memphis became a major slave market. The city would also be a major exporter of cotton. Memphis is considered the home of the blues and the birthplace of rock and roll, with many notable musicians growing up around Memphis like Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, B.B. King, Howlin' Wolf, Isaac Hayes, Andrew Hayes, Young Dolph, and of course Elvis Presley. And really, Memphis has also been saturated with the music culture of gospel, jazz, R&B, rap, and soul. A little fun fact, close to 20% of the earliest inductees, 24 of the 97 in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, have come from within a 100-mile radius of Memphis. That is very cool. Yeah, so I know they call Nashville Music City or whatever, but Memphis has a little bit of a right to claim that, too. Absolutely. This was also the place where Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. would die on April 4, 1968, at the Lorraine Motel. Today, Memphis is home to St. Jude Children's Hospital, Graceland, Sun Studios, and Beale Street. And historic Adams Avenue is home to many wonderful Victorian-era mansions. We covered Cleveland's Millionaire's Row in Episode 352. Many major cities in America had a Millionaire's Row during the Victorian era. Memphis was no different, with Adams Avenue being the home of its Millionaire's Row. And while the opulent homes were beautiful, there was a dark side to this road, too. Wade Hampton Sides wrote a 2010 book about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. named Hellhounds on His Trail, and he describes Adams Avenue in this way. A block from the park was a place on Adams Avenue where Nathan Bedford Forrest once operated a giant slave market, said to be the South's largest. That boasted, quote, the best selected assortment of field hands, house servants, and mechanics, with fresh supplies of likely young Negroes, end quote. The neighborhood was on the outskirts of Memphis. Over a dozen three- and four-story homes were built along this lane between 1845 and 1890. As the city expanded, the area around the Victorian village declined with more lower-income homes being built. As the exclusiveness vanished, so did, too, the wealthy families who had lived here. Some of the abandoned mansions were demolished, but several still stand today. And a few of them are reportedly haunted. So we're going to start with the Woodruff Fontaine House. This is located at 680 Adams Avenue. And it could definitely be in the running as a home for the Adams family. Now, this street just has one D in its name. But you could put two and have the Adams family living on Adams Avenue. <laughs> This totally looks like a house they would live in. It's a second Empire French Victorian mansion. It was built in 1871 by prominent businessman Amos Woodruff. Woodruff was born in 1820 in New Jersey. He and his brother moved to Memphis in 1845. They owned a carriage-making business, and after a while, Amos's brother decided to go back to New Jersey. 
Woodruff continued on his own and became very successful. He eventually opened a hotel, was a bank president, and got involved with the railroad, a cotton compress firm, and a lumber company. In 1870, Woodruff purchased land along Adams Avenue for $12,000, and he built his five-story mansion designed by architectural firm Jones & Baldwin, headed by Edward C. Jones and Matthias H. Baldwin. Jones had designed the first skyscraper in Memphis, so that's where he got his name in architecture. The house featured a mansard roof, a central tower with tower lookout on the fourth and fifth floors, and an elevated basement. There were 18 large rooms and three great halls, with the layout being the standard southern pattern of a broad center hall with rooms on each side opening into the halls. The floors featured high ceilings, and the interior had decorative molding and framing with rope motifs and scroll carvings. The stairwell ceiling at the top of the third floor was hand-hammered tin with wreaths, garlands, and winged cherub designs. I'd love to see that. Amos moved into the house with his wife Phoebe and their four children, Sally, Molly, Frank, and Cora, and they lived there until 1883. Woodruff sold the house to Nolan Fontaine in 1883. Fontaine came from Louisville, Kentucky, to Memphis when he was in his 20s. He married Virginia Eanes in 1864, and they had 10 children. Molly, Williamson, Emma, Virginia, Noland, Edward, Martha, Seward, and Elliot. Fontaine made his money in cotton, and he opened Hill Fontaine and Company. The Fontaines loved to throw lavish parties, one of which had John Philip Sousa's band performing. Even President Grover Cleveland came to a party. The Fontaines' daughter Molly got married in 1886, and the reception was thrown in the house's ballroom. Nolan told the couple he was going to build them a house across the street, and it took four years. We'll talk about that house in a bit. The Fontaine family lived in the house until 1926. Both Nolan and his wife Virginia died in the house. The Woodruff Fontaine house was then sold to a woman named Rosa Lee, who also owned the house next door. Both houses were turned into the James Lee Art Academy, and we'll talk about that later as well. When the art school moved out, the house was willed to the city, but stood vacant and vandalized and was going to be demolished. In 1962, the Memphis chapter of the Association for the Preservation of Tennessee Antiquities acquired the house and restored it by adding modern plumbing, wiring, heating, and air conditioning. Wainscoting and plaster were repaired, as was a fresco painting on the ceiling of the West Ballroom. The mansion opened in 1964 for tours, weddings, and events. And there are stories of ghosts. And Kelly, you know, I love to throw these little fun facts in. While I was researching the house, I saw that with this being the Second Empire French style, they like symmetry and balance. It's key to their architecture. So in the back of the foyer, there are two doors across from each other. One door is an actual door that leads to another area, while the other door opens onto a brick wall. Oh my gosh, that's too funny. Yeah, so they just put the door there because they wanted it to be symmetrical to have a door on each side. And the door actually opens? Apparently it does because it opens <laughs> onto a brick wall. So I, I'm assuming you can open it and you're just like, oh, at least <laughs> they could have put a closet there or something. I don't know. Right. Now, I know we're going to get a little bit of confusion going here because the Woodruffs and the Fontaines both had daughters named Molly and they both are going to come up here in different houses. So this first one is Molly Woodruff, and they both spell their name with an I-E as well. She lived at the house with her husband, so this is the Woodruff house, Egbert Woolrich. The couple lost a young child shortly after childbirth, and then Egbert got a staph infection and pneumonia and passed away. 
Both of these events took place in what is called the Rose Room at the mansion. This had been Molly's bedroom. She eventually remarried in 1883 and moved to her new husband's home. Molly lost another child there, and she would have no children after that. She eventually moved in with her sister, who had a home on Poplar, and died there in 1917. And although she did die somewhere else, Molly Woodruff is thought to be one of the spirits that's here at the Woodruff-Fontaine Mansion. Staff and visitors have seen a smoke-formed apparition of Molly. Staff say that she shows up whenever they start moving furniture or updating things in the house. Molly can get pretty angry about changes and likes to slam doors and break things. Her favorite spot seemed to be the bed in the Rose Room, and she is seen sitting on it. The great-granddaughter of Molly's sister Sarah, Elizabeth Edwards, claimed that she was in the house when Molly slammed a door. She also had friends who heard disembodied footsteps and an audible voice call out, My dear! Laura Cunningham wrote in her book, Haunted Memphis, that, On one occasion, while Mrs. Edwards was conducting a tour, a woman walked into Molly's old bedroom and grew quite pale and started to tremble. She told Mrs. Edwards that she was a psychic medium who could give messages from the dead. She informed Mrs. Edwards that Molly's room was arranged incorrectly and that the bed was near the wrong wall. The large half-tester bed stands against the south wall, but the medium felt it belonged on the east wall, closest to the central staircase. And Kelly, neither one of us knew what a half-tester bed. They have a canopy that doesn't extend to the foot of the bed. Ah, so just over half of it, I guess? Yeah, so the headboard would normally be fully paneled to the canopy. So it is, it's not even halfway the pictures I'm looking at. It's just kind of over where your heads are on the pillow. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'd never heard of that before. Susan Morgan was the events coordinator for the house back in 2009 when she told the blog I Love Memphis that she had personal experiences with the various ghosts. One time she had a string of pearls ripped from her neck. Oh, well, that's not cool. No, and that's some force because, you know, they don't put a string of pearls just on some cheapy little thing. She has also had her hair stand up and she's had to smooth out the bedclothes in Molly's bedroom in the morning after having everything straightened the night before. So clearly Molly's getting back in her bed at night. Art students from the school also claim to experience hearing disembodied sighs and whispers coming from Molly's old room. This room also is sometimes filled with a musty odor and can get very cold. A visitor once entered the room and immediately started having trouble breathing. She turned to the guide and asked, who died in the room? A young boy on a tour turned to his teacher and asked where the lady had gone that had just been sitting in a chair. People who see the full-bodied apparition of Molly say that she is wearing a period dress that is green. It's not just Molly here. People claim to hear the sound of a baby crying and then a woman whispering to the baby. Contractors have felt as though someone was following them around and chandeliers have swung on their own. The paranormal activity heightens from February to May, which is the time between when the baby passed and Egbert died. On the day before the anniversary of Egbert's death one year, some staff heard crying coming from upstairs. They went upstairs to investigate and the crying stopped. When they went back downstairs, the crying started again. A male spirit likes to hang out on the third floor and cigar smoke is detected up there. No one has ever seen him, but they feel him and he has a more hostile feel to him than Molly, especially towards women. Female visitors and staff feel threatened on the third floor. One former female director was even pushed down the stairs. It is thought that this isn't Egbert, but rather Elliot Fontaine, who died during the Spanish flu of 1918 when he was only 34. It is believed that he was gay and a snooty socialite. Perhaps that is why men feel perfectly comfortable on the third floor, but women do not. 
A tour guide claims to have seen a man that resembled Elliot sitting at the base of the fourth floor tower steps. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Now we're going to check out the Molly Fontaine Taylor House. This is the other Molly. This is today known as the Molly Fontaine Lounge, and it sits across from the Woodruff Fontaine House at 679 Adams Avenue. Nolan Fontaine built this for his daughter Molly as a wedding gift. This mansion was built in 1886 in the Queen Anne Victorian style. This is a smaller house than those around it, but it is spectacular with its gingerbread ornamentation. Molly lived here with her husband, William W. Taylor, until his death in 1925, and then she continued on alone until she passed in 1939. For the next few decades, the house changed hands and was divided into apartments. The Memphis Housing Authority bought the property in 1965 for an urban renewal project. Elaborate parties became a staple at the house starting in the 1970s. The owner during that time was quite the ladies' man, apparently, and rumors claim that the home was a set for a penthouse photo shoot, possibly the first one. Oh, my. Karen and Bob Carrier would buy the house as a private residence in 1985, and Karen ran her catering company, another roadside attraction, out of the house. The Carriers eventually renovated the carriage house and used it for the catering company. Karen owned several restaurants in Memphis, and she decided to turn the house into another one called Cielo in 1996. In 2007, the house was renovated once again and reopened as the Molly Fontaine Lounge. The lounge describes itself as funky, extraordinary, eclectic, soulful, artsy, avant-garde, like your crazy aunt's place, with a fondness for Alice in Wonderland incongruities. Molly Fontaine Lounge is open from 5 p.m. till the spirits go to sleep. I mean, this sounds like a description for the History Goes Bump Spectacular crew, too. There you go. <laughs> All we need is our clubhouse, which could be this lounge, and we're good to go. Sounds like a plan to me. They have hosted DJ nights and burlesque shows throughout the years. I can't do the burlesque shows for the clubhouse. Mort, ain't nobody wants to see that. This other Molly haunts her former home. So this is Molly Fontaine haunting this location. So basically you have the two Molly ghosts haunting places across the street from each other. I wonder if they wave to each other from the windows. Hello. Hey, Molly. Are you up over there? <laughs> Patrons and staff claim that Molly likes to take things, and she even has flipped a cake or two. Now that is a crime. Don't ruin cakes unless that means I can go ahead and eat it. One hot summer day, she was blamed for turning the power off. The manager lifted the glass he was drinking from and proclaimed, Cheers to Molly! And the power came back on. Now this has become a tradition at the lounge. And next we have McGevney House. This house is certainly nothing fancy compared to the Victorians on this street. The McGevney House is a simple white clapboard home located at 198 Adams Avenue. The original build that was constructed in 1833 consisted of just one room and a hallway. The house is named for Eugene McGevney, who was born in Ireland in 1798, and he studied to become a priest. He first came to America in 1828 and spent five years in Pennsylvania. Eugene eventually moved to Memphis in 1833, where he worked as a teacher and became a civic leader. 
He boarded at the house until he bought it in 1837. At that time, he added a front parlor and an upper floor to the home. The parlor came in handy as McGevney was Catholic and he would hold the first Catholic mass in Memphis in the parlor of his home. This was in 1839. Another Catholic first for the city would be Eugene's marriage to Mary Smythe, who was a former student of his in Ireland. The couple would have two daughters, Mary and Kate, with Mary's baptism being the first Catholic one in the city. And this also took place in the parlor of the McGevney house. In the 1850s, Eugene added two rooms to the back of the house. Much of the payment that Eugene received for his lessons came in the form of land, and soon he had amassed a considerable fortune. But he would continue to live in his little clapboard cottage. He ran unsuccessfully for mayor after retiring from teaching, and then died in 1873 during the city's yellow fever epidemic. His wife Mary stayed in the house until her death in 1889, and Kate inherited the house and lived in it until 1925. Her sister Mary had left for Galveston, Texas, where she established the Sacred Heart Convent in 1882. Kate married twice. Her first husband, John Dawson, died in the house in 1872. Her second husband, Hugh Hamilton, died in 1887. Kate took over her father's real estate business, and by the time she died in 1930, it was worth $3.5 million. My goodness. So she took her daddy's business and ran with it. Definitely had that business acumen. Now, unfortunately... There was no will, and a big court battle ensued with Kate's adopted daughter, Blanche Karsh, receiving the bulk of the estate. She gave the house to the city in 1941. That's why it's always important to have a will, especially if you've got that much money. The city of Memphis restored the house and transformed it into a museum that featured what life was like for a family in the 1850s. During the restoration, a half inch of paint needed to be burned off the walls and then a reproduction of Victorian wallpaper that was similar to the type used in the 1850s was added to the walls. Probably the most painstaking work took place on the roof. The family had installed a front porch and tin roof that went over the original cypress shingle roof. An exact replica was made of each shingle made from cypress. Good grief. (laughs) There are pieces of furniture original to the family, including Mary Smythe's horsehair trunk she came over from Ireland with, and Eugene's desk. I bet you'd love to have that horsehair trunk. Heck yeah. Strangely, a hand-carved crucifix was found lodged in a wall, and it is now on display downstairs. The house was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1973. Very good year. The museum is now under the direction of Pink Palace Museums and is open on the first Saturday of every month in the afternoons. If you visit, you might experience some ghosts. Some employees have felt so uncomfortable in the house that they are reluctant to go inside and usually hang out in the garden unless conducting a tour. So you'll probably always find your tour guide outside when you're going to go in. Apparently. Visitors have sometimes felt the same way, not staying long enough for the tour to finish. One woman reportedly left in tears claiming something bad was in the house. I don't know. I mean, this was a house that had a lot of Catholic first go on in it. So it's like, why is there something bad here? A group of school children were visiting the house and they watched as a locked door to Eugene's desk opened on its own. My. (laughs) I never got to go on any tours like that when I was a kid. Show me some ghosts. Two child ghosts have been seen and heard in the house and it's believed that this is Mary and Kate when they were young. People claim to see them peering out of the windows at night. Child footprints have been seen in the garden when volunteers arrive in the morning. A young girl once told her mother that she saw a man standing in the alley between the house and the church next door, but her mother didn't see anyone. The sound of a ball bouncing down the stairs has been heard multiple times and no ball is ever found, much less someone who was playing with it. And here's what is really interesting about that. 
The stairs to get to the upper floor were on the exterior when the city acquired the house. Oh, my goodness. They built the interior stairs so they aren't original to the house and weren't here when the family lived there. So if you're thinking this is some kind of a residual haunting, it is not. So I don't know how this is happening unless the kids are really ghosts in there and they went, oh, look, there's stairs inside. We can play with the ball on. And now on to Mallory Neely House. This breathtaking home is at 652 Adams Avenue and is considered to be one of the best preserved Victorian homes in the United States. New York banker Isaac B. Kirtland built a two and a half story house on a three acre lot along Adams Avenue in 1852. This was designed in the Italianate villa style. Kirtland sold the house and one acre of the land to cotton merchant Benjamin Babb for $40,000 in 1864. Babb had arrived in Memphis 20 years before that, and by 1881, he and his brother-in-law had founded Benjamin Babb & Company. James Columbus Neely would be the next owner, and he moved in with his family in 1883. He also worked in cotton as a broker and had a wholesale grocery. The Neelys would make major renovations to the house over the next 10 years, adding a full third floor and the four-story tower in the front. This brought the house up to 25 rooms, and nearly every room boasted a fireplace. The interior featured elaborate stenciling on the ceilings, parquet flooring, and ornamental plaster work. The family also added two stained glass windows purchased at the 1892 Columbian Exposition in Chicago. The house passed on to the Neely's youngest daughter, Daisy, in 1900. She had married cotton broker Barton Lee Mallory. He had established W.B. Mallory and Sons with his father. The couple had three children, William, Barton Lee, and Francis. The home was big enough to share with Daisy's sister Pearl and her husband Daniel Grant and their kids. Barton died in 1938, but Daisy stayed on in the house until her death in 1969 at age 98, and she made it known that she wanted the house to become a historic museum. The mansion wouldn't be donated until 1972, and at that time it was turned over to the daughters, sons, and children of the American Revolution. They turned the home into a museum and eventually turned it over to the city of Memphis in 1985. In 1987, it became part of the Pink Palace Museums. It was closed from 2005 until 2012 due to a need for expensive renovations. Today, it has a new slate and copper roof and is open for tours on Fridays and Saturdays. Whatever is haunting this house is friendly and welcoming. The first person to feel a presence in the house was living in a suite of rooms that had been turned into an apartment on the second floor. She experienced weird stuff but wasn't spooked by any of it. An investigator was taking pictures in the house and captured an image with hundreds of sparkles appearing throughout the room. At the time, the group that was in the room all felt the hair on their arms stand on end. There was a feeling of electrical energy, and it lasted for quite a while. A visible orb was once seen on the ceiling of the second-floor hallway and was described as being indigo-colored. No source could be found for what was causing it as no sunlight reached the area. Very unique color, indigo-colored. People have seen a woman crying in a third-story window. The third floor actually seems to have the most haunting activity. A cleaning crew once saw a woman with white, untamed hair staring down at them from the third-story stairwell. That'll be me as a ghost. Neither would ever be in the house alone after that. Laura Cunningham writes in her 2009 book, Haunted Memphis, that the Mallory family had their own ghost story, too. She writes, One Halloween night, guests were arriving at the house for a party. Through the open front door, one person spotted a disembodied hand creeping down the banister of the Grand Central Staircase. Ooh. Thing? Yeah, thing! <laughs> it's <laughs> on, it's on Adams Avenue. <laughs> Next up, we have the James Lee House, and this is our last house. 
It's no wonder that the James Lee House is an internationally acclaimed boutique bed and breakfast. The house is absolutely gorgeous and stands at 690 Adams Avenue. The house was built in three stages. The original part of the house was built in 1848 and consisted of a small two-story brick house. William Harson was the owner and he was a lumber baron. He sold the house to his son-in-law, Charles W. Goyer, in 1852. Goyer had married Harson's daughter, Laura, in 1849. He came to Memphis via a flatboat in 1841 when he was still a teenager, but he hit the ground running and became a prosperous merchant. After buying the house, he added a second addition to the south side of the home. In 1871, he added onto the front of the house, which included a three-story tower that totally makes his house. The additions to the house were necessary as Charles and Laura had 10 children. Laura died of yellow fever in the late 1860s and Goyer married her sister, Charlotte. Lee Line Steamers was founded in Memphis by James Lee. His son, Captain James Lee Jr., was a Princeton graduate and he moved to Memphis in 1860 to work as a lawyer. He had formerly lived in another house on Adams Avenue. He retired from law in 1877 and joined his father at Lee Line Steamers. When he died, the house passed to his daughter, Rosa, who was the last family member to live in the house. She donated it to the city to serve as the James Lee Arts Academy that eventually became the Memphis College of Arts. The art school moved to Overton Park in 1959. The Memphis chapter of the APTA acquired the house in 1961, saving it from demolition, but nothing was done to restore it. The mansion sat vacant for decades, and then in 2013, Jose and Jennifer Velasquez and J.W. and Kathy Buckman bought the James Lee House in partnership, and they spent a year restoring the property. The website has tons of pictures featuring the work that was done, so I encourage you to check it out. It's very cool, very painstaking work that they did to this house. It reopened as the bed and breakfast it is today in 2014 and features five suites. I encourage you to check out the picture of all these rooms. We're going to talk about them here. It just looks like a really great place. The Lee Suite was formed from three rooms and features a collection of antique books. The Harson Suite was also formed from three rooms and has a rustic farmhouse feel with two exposed brick chimneys that have cast iron mantles. The Goyer Suite has a clawfoot tub that is original to the house. I want to stay in that one. (laughs) The Crosley Suite is the only one on the first floor and also is formed from three rooms and is decorated Art Deco style. And finally, the Isabel Suite has an exposed brick chimney and features a door to the bathroom left over from the art school days that has doodles all over it. Along with decadent treats and a relaxing atmosphere, the B&B also has a spirit. Laura Goyer seems to have never left the house. Art students as well as visitors have reported for decades that they have seen a woman in red. Finally, another colored dress. Yes, we're so tired (laughs) of just our women in white or maybe a gray dress thrown in here and there. We've got a red one. Investigators and psychics all feel as though this woman in red is very agitated. Maybe that's her aura. It could be red, agitated, makes sense. Several students claim to see a woman in a flowing red dress come floating down the front staircase. And when she got to the bottom, she disappeared. A former caretaker once said he saw a rocking chair rock by itself. On another occasion, he saw a woman in red standing in the corner of the apartment he lived in at the back of the house. This was in the oldest section of the house. Many people who enter claim to feel an angry energy. But based on the success of the B&B, we aren't so sure that it is true. But maybe it is true, because maybe Laura is mad that her husband married her sister. 
Yeah, I don't know what she's so angry about unless she didn't like that they have people in there that had turned it into an art school and then now, a, I don't know, I think they'd be happy that the house had been refurbed. So not sure well, what she's so angry about. They changed it up, creating each suite out of three separate rooms. So That's true. maybe it's that. These glorious homes make up a special section of Memphis, full of memories and possibly ghosts. Standing here, one can imagine glancing in the windows and spying couples in their finest, swaying to the sound of jazz music. Or maybe it is an imagination. Maybe there are spirits here still going about their business in the afterlife. Is Memphis's Victorian village haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, I definitely want to get to Memphis to see Graceland, and this is on the list. Do not want to miss this place. Absolutely. You don't want to miss our website either at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Janae had messaged us and she said, hello, fearless leaders. Got another ghostly encounter for you. Two evenings ago when I was walking up my driveway, I saw with my physical eyes a gray figure of an elderly man standing in my backyard hunched over with his hands behind his back inspecting my begonias. He was only there for a few seconds, straightened up, looked at me and vanished. I was able to see that he had a squarish kind of head and glasses. After he vanished, I saw in my mind's eye the image of my father-in-law, who was very much alive. But spirit uses what I know to help me understand better, and I got the sense that this man in my backyard had similar physical features to my father-in-law. The house I lived in has had three sets of owners. Us, the people we bought the house from, and her grandparents. The couple we bought the house from isn't that much older than we are, so I knew it wasn't him. The next evening, which had been last night, I asked my next door neighbor if she could tell me what the first owners looked like, specifically Cecil the husband. She did better than that. She sent me pics. Here is a picture of Cecil on the left and my father-in-law on the right for comparison. And I have to tell you, both you and I, Kelly, agree these men look very similar. Very, very similar. Both same style of glasses and same kind of hair noses, everything looks very similar. And when she says square-like head, Cecil clearly had some kind of a crew cut for his hairstyle, (laughs) which is why she would have seen a square type head. I was just like, wow, very cool. She said, also, according to my neighbor, Cecil loved to garden and planted all of the trees in my yard. I just hope he isn't too critical of how much I need to weed the plant beds. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) Got to get out in the garden more often, I guess thought you would appreciate this story, especially since I saw him with my physical eyes this time as a full-bodied apparition. I mean, you don't see those things often. And she's sensitive, so it'd be one thing for her to be like, well, I had a psychic impression, but to actually see something, it's pretty cool. Very, very cool. And if he liked the garden, he'd be looking at her flowers, maybe appreciating them. Yep. Then Bobby had posted in the Spooktacular crew, synchronicity, especially since this is the story that legit gives me the creeps and accidentally ended up in Sleepy Hollow on my way to Terrytown at night. So she had listened to our Sleepy Hollow Redux and she showed me that she had the list of what she'd listened to. A day ago, it said The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, the short story. So she'd listened to that. And then 16 hours ago, so just a few hours different, we dropped Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman Redux. (laughs) There's that synchronicity. I love it. Our listeners, every one of you at some point gets a little piece of synchronicity from the show. And I love it when you guys share it when it happens. And then Hannah on Patreon said, hello, I'm a listener from the UK. I might be too late for haunted schools, but I thought I'd share anyway. I've just finished working in a school that is reportedly haunted. It started off as a Victorian home, fits in perfectly with this episode, then became an old people's home, complete with mortuary room, apparently, and then became a school. 
Friends of mine have seen a lady in white, a butler, and children who they realize are not part of their class. People have also heard footsteps, door slamming, and seen a figure in a top floor window. I would never work alone there. Oh, my. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that with us, Hannah. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Cassandra Distilly. You're going to be buried under an obelisk tombstone. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. Thanks for tuning in, Spookies. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Memphis's Susan Morgan was the events coordinator for the house back in 2009 when she told the blob, the blob, <laughs> the blob, <laughs> the blob. <laughs> that was a typo. It's supposed to say blog. I just read the typo when she told the blob. Get out of town. Stop killing people. <laughs> Everyone run for the theater before the blob gets you. I don't know why Susan Morgan's talking about her ghostly experience to the blob, <laughs> but she is. Thanks, folks. We're here all week. Try the veal. Tip your weight, Seth. <laughs> a young boy on a tour torn to his teacher and asked... Torn to his teacher? It's too many T's. A young boy on a tour torn... <laughs> torn... <laughs> Torn to his teacher, tour and turn. You try to say tour and torn together. I can't even tour turned tour tour. Now I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listeners, you try it. Can you do it? Tour turned, tour torn to his teacher. I mean, those are four T's right there. Who the hell wrote this? You did. I know. (laughs) The owner during that time was quite the ladies' man, apparently, and rumors claim that the home was a set for a penthouse photo shoot, possibly the first one. Oh, my. Huh. What was that? <laughs> wow. I don't know. What was that reaction? <laughs> it was like that you was... were trying to say something, but you forgot what it was as it was coming out I don't know mouth. if it was a wow and a huh, or maybe it was just that primal instinct penthouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> oh, good grief. <sighs> One thing's for certain. We have fun recording. Yes, we do. <laughs> Through the open front door, one person spottied a... Spottied? They spottied it. The carriers eventually revenated... The carriers revenated the place? They revenated it. You know, they do call some ghosts revenants. Well, there you go. Right, hand in hand. (laughs)